I think Islam hates us. They have done nothing except wreak havoc and terror for our faith and our religion. We, when we stand up to those who oppress our communities, that Allah accepts from us that as a form of jihad. Foundations of society are fragile. We must be the shepherds of our own civilization. If anyone answers either yes or no without making necessary distinctions, both are not telling the truth. They're lying. Father, we pray that your word will become a hammer that breaks rocks into pieces. That you will raise up in this nation pulpits and prophets that will call the nation back to repentance. Will you distance yourself from those who think differently or will you join us at the table and talk about what is really important? This is the Maida Initiative, Conversation Without Compromise. Deuteronomy 16 verse 18 says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and, and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So, uh, Thanks for being on the show today. So uh, we're here to talk about corruption. Yes. As a, as a, as a general thing. So uh, let's, before we get into what you did and what you've experienced, sure. let's define what we're talking about here. Yes. Because I think when a lot of people hear corruption, there's a general sense of the word and uh, about j just how everything, all sorts of immoral things can be considered corrupt or sure. all sorts of things. But then there's a very specific socioeconomic, geopolitical yep. way we're using this. So how would you define corruption? So that's a great question. Um, I, I was thinking about this yesterday and today and kind of came to the same conclusion as you. Corruption is used for, you can say like a computer hard drive is corrupt, but um, what does that, that does not mean it's taking bribes, right? So how do you define corruption in that way? Kind of, I, I did a couple of things. I looked up how other people defined it. And a definition that I really liked came from Transparency International. Are you familiar with them? Yeah, I looked that up right before this. Okay, great. So I love theirs. And theirs says, corruption is the abuse of entrusted power for private gain. It can be classified as grand, petty, and political, depending on the amounts of money lost and the sector where it occurs. Um, so that's the, kind of their like baseline. This is what corruption is. But they also go on to say, you know, Corruption can be things that lead to death, lead to like um, putting certain groups of people down, bringing other pe groups of people up unfairly. But um, I like that. I think in general, corruption as it applies to, um, you know, government and political political power is, to me, it's really taking that trust that's been gi given to you. And instead of using it to benefit the people and the role that they've asked you to do, using it to benefit yourself. Um, whether that's make money or move yourself up politically or whatever it is, but kind of taking that trust and then turning it for the sole purpose of yourself um, and maybe benefiting people down the line, but really the focus is is you. So it's there is a very a very selfish um, aspect to corruption for me when I when I look at it. So that's re really how we're defining corruption for this is really exactly what Deuteronomy is describing here. Yeah. Bribery and partiality. Yeah. In in the hands of people there to serve a greater purpose than themselves, yes. turning it to private use. Yeah, absolutely. 
So how did you get into this world? What did you do? How did you come face to face with corruption over the world and in Iraq? Sure. So it probably started uh, the kind of the journey started for me when I was about 18. Um, I joined the army and uh, this would have been 2004 and um, correction, that would have been 2003. So joined the army in 2003, um, graduated basic training in like September 2003. We had invaded Iraq, I think in March 2003. Um, and I found myself over there by, I think March, almost a year later, March 2004, I was there. And um, that career path took me from the military. I spent several years, several tours over there with the military, um, then transitioned over to the State Department. And I worked for the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service for about nine years in several roles. Um, most recently, I was a special agent with them. But as with my time with the State Department, I spent an additional, I think I spent about two years with the military in Iraq and then an additional four years um, with the State Department working out of the U.S. Embassy and consulates there in Iraq. So with a security focus on my work with the State Department, um, it's fair to say that I came in contact with um, corruption on a pretty regular basis and at very truly varying levels um, of corruption as well. But uh, yeah, I think over about, and that period, that six-year period total living in Iraq would have spanned from about 2004 to I left the last time I was there would have been fall 2017. Um, so the most recent was just a couple of years ago. So so curious for you kind of going into Iraq. I remember when I the Iraq war started when I was 13, 14. Mm -hmm. And I remember just having this very naive view of the whole thing and thinking, thinking okay, this is World War II. We're just going to go in get the dictator, rebuild the country. Yeah. Everything's going to be great. Yeah. So did you, were you ever that, were you ever as naive as I was or was, were you, what happened? What was uh, your attitude towards it at the I, time? I would say that your 13 year old naive view probably reflected the White House's view of that war at the same time. And probably about half of America's view at that, of the war at that time. So um, you were probably a pretty bright 13 year old. <laughs> a lot of people were thinking the same thing. Uh, when I went over there, it was truly as as an 18 year old, it was like, this is going to be adventure. I'm going to see combat and kind of the same thing, you know, growing up watching war movies and playing with G.I. Joe's. I thought this was going to be a kind of a big adventure and did not give much thought into um, all everything that goes into conflict and kind of how terrible it actually really is for everybody that it touches. But yeah, so my view for Iraq was just like there's bad guys there and we're going to go, you know, fight in the military. It was, it was very simplistic um, for an 18 year old, not well thought out for sure. So then describe the process of what, what are some things that you see that cause you to kind of shift your perspective on what's actually going on there? Um, the, uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think for the, the first thing that I saw there, that um, I was like, whoa, this is kind of crazy, was just the amount of destruction within the city. You know, a year after um, driving into Baghdad, a year after the invasion, there were bridges still blown out. There were um, tank hulks on the side of the street. Um, 
there the insurgency was just starting so kind of every night there was gunfire and explosions um i was staying in a palace um that had been hit by six uh six missiles um so there was not much left to it so we're kind of staying in these outbuildings that had not been blown up during the invasion so it was kind of like wow this is really really destructive and maybe the first time where it became very real for me was going into the city uh, into the kind of the neighborhood that we were responsible for the first day. Um, there were several Americans killed on that first patrol that I was on. And then we came in contact um, with, I was hanging out with some kids. And I remember a kid showing me um, where he'd been shot through both elbows huh. um, by the Iraqi police because of something his dad had done. And um it brings to me it was like oh wow this is like this kid was maybe nine or ten years old um and he could show me the scars in each of his elbows where he'd been shot and um as a punishment um for something that his dad had done and i was like this is really really bad um and then the yeah so it was it was very very early on probably the first day when i was like wow this is real um and this is real destructive yeah wow that that's that's crazy and that's an interesting – I think you kind of have two spectrums of the naivety. Right? Mm-hmm. You, had, you had the U.S. naivety. And I think today you see a lot of people being like, oh, if only we could go back to Iraq when Saddam was the president. And it's, it's not that simple. I've had people on this show yeah. whose parents have been running from his people as well. Yeah. So there's, there's plenty of ditches of naivete we can fall into here. Sure. Yeah. And the, so the kid, I'm guessing, is that's during Saddam's time. Yes, or... that would have been with the uh, the secret police under Saddam. Yeah. So, so after your after you transition to the to the State Department, yes, that's I'm guessing that's when you really come face to you. The America's invested in this rebuilding effort, trying to take a country yeah. that's been unstable for a long time, and then sure. try and build this stable, thriving civilization in theory, and. Is that really when you start coming face to face with corruption as we defined it? Earlier than that, it it was it was in two thousand and four, and I I think um, the one of the first things I saw as far as corruption went um, in the first week of me being in Baghdad again. I think this was maybe March April timeframe. Um, we went out to a police station in a neighborhood that we were responsible for, and there were no police there, and. Um, the place was empty. And so we walk in and there our counterparts are like, yep, this is where the police stay. We don't know why they're not here or what's going on, but the place is a ghost town. And um, we kind of walk around and eventually a police officer comes up who is not in his police uniform. He's in civilian clothes. And he said, yeah, we all took off last night. Um, the story that he told us at the time was the people f- felt like they weren't safe. So um, they'd opened up the vaults and given all the guns out to the people that they that we had just given them, like the U.S. military had just given them. They had given the guns to the people because the people didn't feel safe. And also the police officers decided this was the time that we should leave the job because it's not safe here. Um, we found out later the police captain had taken those weapons and was selling them. And um, he was selling them to militants and uh, the insurgency. So he was kind of playing both sides to make money. 
And um, he had come up with the story to that his officers would tell us that there was a bunch of angry people and they had to give them away to like keep the peace. But the fact was he was just taking the weapons, selling them, and then we we're going to give him 100 more rifles and he would sell those also. Um, so that's basic. So within the first week, I'm like, we did not realize this was what was going on until about three months in. Um, but within the first week, I was exposed to like, yeah, somebody's doing something dishonest here. Um, and the story, as the police officer told it, we're kind of like, this does not seem right. That's like, that's like a high school excuse. Like, oh, what? they were angry, so I had to give them the guns. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's shocking uh, that that's kind of the – but that's the story, and um, it did not hold up well. Again, I think three months later, um, we went out on – we took the police chief out with us, and we said, we're going on a raid. We're going to arrest a HVT, which is a high-value target. Um, so we'd like you to ride along with us. And he said, great, met us at the police station. We drove to his house. And um, when we got out of the car, he's like, wait, this is my house. We're like, yep, it's you. And uh, we arrested him there and searched his house and seized a bunch of money and other things like that. But yeah, um, so it, it, the corruption at kind of, and that's kind of very low level corruption truly at that, at that point. Um, I would say in that first year that I was there, uh, there was kind of his, his stuff was truly, truly very low level. The, in that first year from 2003 to 2004 after the invasion, um, there is a uh, auditor that's assigned to that was assigned to Iraq by Congress. Um, as you know, Congress funds like all of these conflicts and like all the military and all those things. So they have the right to assign kind of an internal auditor to go investigate and see how the money is being spent. In that first year that I was there and uh, the first year after the invasion, 2003 to about June 2004, um, $8.8 billion was unaccounted for. And I believe that's of $12 billion that we sent over there in cash. Wow. So they basically, it was the largest transfer ever of U.S. currency out of the country. And C-130 and probably C-17, like military transport planes, were landing in New York getting pallets of $100 bills dropped into the back of them, flown to Baghdad, mm-hmm. offloaded. And then the CPA, the um, the Coalition Provisional Authority led by Paul Bremer at the time, um, was dispersing that money um, to where they thought it was needed. Um, and of the $12 billion, they, $9 billion, they could not account for. Like when they said, where's the money? Who'd it go to? They're like, well, we gave $500 million to this minister for TBD. And they're like, what is TBD and where is that? And they had no answer. And um, that kind of first audit in 2004, it would have been summer of 2004, it's kind of very indicative of how Iraq went after that. And one of the, one of the call outs that I actually just was reading this morning was that uh, the special, they call it a special inspector general for Iraq reconstruction or SIGR. Um, what he, one of the things that he discovered very early on is he said, hey, there's a ministry that um, they're saying they're paying 8,600 guards. They're employing 8,600 guards and paying for them. When we asked them to account, show us IDs for all of those guards, they could provide IDs for 600 people. So we gave them payroll for 8,600 people, but they can only prove to us that they have 600 people working for them. And kind of as we talk about corruption in Iraq, this is something that comes up big time later on, 2014, 2015. So, um, yeah, I would say 
in that first year, uh, corruption was very, very widespread. We saw a lot of cash. We seized a lot of cash from insurgent households or safe houses. And a lot of it was in U.S. dollars, $100 bills. Um, yeah, I again, I remember searching somebody once and uh, an older guy and he had a pistol on him, a sweet little revolver, and he had a bag with about $100,000 cash in it in U.S. US bills, like $100,000. And um, it turns out that he was working for us doing something super secret. I still don't know what it was because I was a private at the time and nobody wanted to tell me. But um, we let him go with his pistol and said, take it easy, bud. But there was just a lot of cash moving around um, from person to person, uh, ministry to ministry, and um, there was no way of keeping track of it. Yeah, that that's that sounds like a, a recipe for disaster. Absolutely, and and it's it's interesting. It's totally not unique to Iraq. Like those um, having worked in conflict zones for maybe ten years that kind of period when everything's disorganized and the whole world says, we need to fix this, let's send in money, um, that's a great opportunity, whether it's Libya or Iraq or Afghanistan, it's a great opportunity for corruption to kind of go in there at people with, um, with the wrong motives, like you said, with personal motives for personal gain, um, to kind of dive in and make themselves very, very rich. And it, it happens pretty regularly. And I think... Um, from the American perspective, we see these terrible things. We're like, how can we help? Well, let's give them $50 million. And it seems like that's it. Um, but truly, their problems are always more complex than $50 million will just fix this. Um, and $50 million often makes things worse. Um, but it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction. And being the wealthiest country on earth, I think it's very easy for us to say, We'll just throw money at it, and that will fix it. And now we can say we're we're helping out, right? And I, it's easy for I think we us on as an, on an individual level to have that reaction as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think I remember g going to the Philippines, and and thinking, wow, if only there was just more money here, people would have a better quality of life. But the more I talk to people, the more I realize often what happens in that culture is you make a poor person rich and they treat the poor people around them worse than the rich people before them <laughs> treated them. So it's this really strange system of there's all these small everyday decisions people make with money yeah, that just kind of drain it really, really quickly to being completely ineffective. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's mind-boggling, um, and I think it does not help that the U.S. government in general has access to so much money, and we give it out so freely, thinking that it will fix things. Like it's yeah, totally not helpful. So so generally, like, what is that money for? Is it for? Is it just to run the government, hospitals, roads, infrastructure? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. I I think. Um, Tons of things, right? It's truly everything. Like I remember we did, uh, and this is again, I, I can talk a little bit about kind of personal experiences. Um, very early on, uh, just to be clear, I was very low ranking. I was a private, like in the, as an infantryman, like about as low as it comes. Um, so I was not senior, a senior decision maker at all when I was in the military. 
Um, but I do remember programs, um, they were, there was a program going on in Baghdad when I first got there where they were handing out, if you were a pensioner from the Iraqi government, meaning you had retired from Iraqi civil service, um, the banks were not functioning uh, and delivering money. You could go down to a U.S. military base, and I believe they would give you $40 a day in two $20 bills. So thousands of people, probably tens of thousands of people would line up, go get their 20 or $40. And I, I'm saying this number, it may be, I may be saying the incorrect number, but they're basically handing out cash every day to these people to kind of keep them afloat. And um, so, it, yeah, the money was just, it, and that was a program somebody thought up with like, hey, we gotta keep these pensioners employed. Uh, a big concern for us in 2004 was if we have a bunch of unemployed men, um, they're going to pick up the guns that are lying around everywhere, and this is going to turn into insurgency. So they said we should gainfully employ them somehow. And so, and I am not joking, this thing was called Operation Shiny Objects, and cash was given to the U.S. military. And we were we drove around for about two weeks identifying garbage piles, um, places that could be turned into parks because it was an empty field, and went back to these local governments and said, if you hire men to clean up the trash, we'll give you a thousand bucks, or if you put in a park in this empty lot for kids, we'll give you five thousand bucks, and the sole purpose was to try and gainfully employ. Um, all these young men that had no jobs with the idea that that would keep them out of an insurgency. So those are maybe two examples of where money was just going out with kind of, there would be low accountability for that money that went out. Like if we gave it to somebody who said they were a local tribal leader in this village, we don't really know if that money ever made it or if things got cleaned up. And we're doing, there were so many projects like that we could not keep track of them. We were just identifying them and then paying people who said they would take care of them. Um, so yeah, that would be a great example of money going out, low accountability. Um, was it useful? I think it was a great idea. Uh, I did see some pretty cool tiny little parks get built and some of the garbage cleaned up. But at the same time, we also saw the insurgency grow in that neighborhood. So it was not having the, the outcome um, that we thought it would have the direct outcome that we thought it would have. So then what, what year did you transfer from the military to the State Department? That would have been 2011. 2011? Yeah. So, the, so some pretty big changes between 2004 and 2011. Mm -hmm. So when you joined the State Department, what, what is the kind of main goal of the State Department in Iraq? Because I think probably a lot of people hear the State Department and just think that's code for the CIA. Yeah. Which in your case is not, yes, as far as not. I know. <laughs> I work for the State Department. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, so their main goal, I, th I think truly the State Department and every foreign service, foreign office um, for any government is, uh, I think the main goal is to, um, to push forward foreign policy that will benefit that country. And when I say that country, I mean the United States, not necessarily Iraq. Um, because kind of in politics, global politics, we, we like to see states as um, independent, self-interested actors, right? They're doing things for their own self-interest. And I think when those when their self-interest allies or aligns with the self-interest of that 
host country, that's when you can have really successful foreign policy. So I would say, um, first of all, the State Department is self-interested in their foreign policy. It's to promote America and benefit America, um, the United States. That's truly their goal. Um, the role of diplomats is to get those benefits, those goals aligned with things that also benefit the Iraqi government so that when we enter into these partnerships, everybody's making out, right? And so um, there were, when I, when I first got to um, Iraq in 2011 with the State Department, uh, I was assigned to a program called, um, it's called International Narcotics and Law Enforcement, I believe. We called it INL. And it's to kind of build up um, law enforcement capabilities within um, whatever the host nation is, right? So you'll see it a lot in Central and South America where they're fighting um, crime and drug trafficking. And we were, we were going to, um, 2011, 2012 was when the US military officially pulled out of Iraq. And the State Department said, hey, the military has been kind of training and taking care of building up the Iraqi police force. Um, State Department should now take over that role, and we'll do it through our program called, through our INL program, right, our law enforcement program. So I was assigned to that program and operated in a base out of Baghdad that was adjacent to the Ministry of Interior. And the, the whole goal was MOI, the Ministry of Interior, and us would work together, get all these law enforcement development programs, teach rule of law, all those things that, you know, developing police forces need. And um, we were taking that from the military. That contract was for roughly $100 million, I think, the first year. We made it to February, I think, of that first year of it. And uh, the SIGGER, that auditor that Congress appoints, came in. They interviewed our team. They interviewed the counterparts we were working with. And they said, this program needs to be shut down because the Iraqis don't want the training, they just want the money, which is very concerning to us. Um, so if we said, hey, we'll teach a class on how to um, detain prisoners and how to keep them for the first 24 hours um, in, uh, in your, your police system that you have, and we'll bring in law enforcement you know, officials from the US and they'll teach your guys how to do it, and um, they would say we'd prefer cash. And, uh, so these meetings, so we go through a month, two months of meeting with our counterparts, and that's what we keep getting back. And the inspector general came in and just said, this program, there's, there's no point. They said, we're going to pull the plug on this whole thing, um, shut down the base, move back to the embassy. Um, this INL program, this $100 million INL program is being shut down because we're not going to get taken like we have in the past. Um, over money, and that was with the Ministry of Interior, so it would be like uh, Department of Justice um, here in the U.S., that they're just like, no, it's not worth it. The corruption appears to be too rampant, and the fact that they're very cash-focused and they don't actually want the training, um, we're not going to do it. So that was, uh, when I transitioned to the State Department, that was one of the first programs I worked on, and um, it lasted two or three months, and it was shut down. Um, and I think rightfully so. Like at this point, we'd sunk a lot of money um, and not gotten a lot of return. And they said, this is not something we're going to do. Um, but I think it also, when we pulled out of that program, 
we almost unilaterally stopped supporting Iraqi police um, directly with trainers and um, education and training across the whole country. And that's a role that we'd filled um, in almost every city, every neighborhood for the, the previous about 10 years uh, since 2003. So that was kind of the last the last effort and we pulled out, they've centrally engaged, but um, I think when you look at like the creation of ISIS and the police force that you have there now that's you know doing things like shooting protesters to an incredibly large scale, like hunt to the tune of hundreds, not threes or fours that you would see in Hong Kong. Um, I don't want to say they're directly related, but the training stopped six or seven years ago, and now we're seeing kind of a not terribly professional uh, police force there. But yeah. So you're you're joining the State Department in Iraq in almost the exact wrong time to be in that job. Yeah. So so that so the the training police takes a backseat. U.S. troops withdraw. Yep. And then ISIS begins yes. in Iraq. Yes. Now. There are going to be people listening, I know, that are going to make the argument that it is the U.S. government that created ISIS. Sure. What would you What do you think to a claim like that? Um, I would say no. We did not create ISIS. Um, and I've this I've I've heard the same thing, and I've heard the same thing from um, from folks in the Middle East, um, from friends in Iraq as well. And um, I think it is a it's certainly a conspiracy theory. And um, and I think they would all of my colleagues that have expressed this to me would admit that it is a conspiracy theory and that conspiracy theories are very unique um, in the Middle East and that they can kind of gain traction quickly. But, um, yeah, I, I I would say no. I would say, like, I remember in um, 2011, 2012. There was something in Iraq called Sons of Iraq. Um, I actually remember I was, I was there with the military 0809, and we would interact with them. And it was kind of like a local militia movement, um, mostly in Ambar province, this, which would be Sunni uh, groups. And um, we gave them rifles. And um, they also had like these, uh, we call them road guard vests, but you see how like construction workers wear like these orange reflective vests. Mm -hmm. So they put on the orange reflective vests they have the rifle, and uh, we'd say, you are now the local law enforcement militia in charge of this area, and we'll pay you, And um, but you have to keep the peace out here. And they were incredibly effective in like fighting al-Qaeda and um, fighting um, insurgents in those, those regions. Uh, a great resource for us, a great resource for the Iraqi government. When um, Prime Minister Nouria al-Maliki came into power, um, he was... Uh, very partisan. He was, he is a Shia. And um, he basically in 2011, 2012, when the US military pulled out, cut funding for Sons of Iraq um, in Anbar. And so again, when we look at unemployed military age males that are also armed with weapons that we gave them, you have this large group that no longer have funding. Um, they're no longer respected in the way they're respected. And I remember 2013, Protests started in Fallujah um, and other cities out in Ambar. And for the Iraqi listeners, they can definitely correct uh, correct us on the notes here. 
Um, but I remember the protests starting. I remember um, reading news reports in the New York Times or Al Jazeera of uh, the Prime Minister, Nur al-Maliki, kind of issuing ultimatums to the protesters that you need to disperse or we'll disperse you by force. And again, this was 2012, 2013. And at one point in, I believe, 2013, he sent in the military to disperse them by force and they burned down a bunch of tents and I think killed several people as well, if not more. Um, and then you kind of had this, um, this Sunni uprising against the government. Um, and Nuri al-Maliki, again, looking at corruption, um, you know, it doesn't always have to be money. This would have been around the same time frame I visited the headquarters of CTS, which is the counterterrorism service in Iraq, which is like their special forces guys who are amazing, super professional. Like um, they are a great group of guys that have been trained by uh, U.S. special forces, uh, very well respected within Iraq and by the U.S. military as well. And we visited CTS and one of my colleagues who was with me had been a Green Beret with the U.S. Army and and worked a lot with CTS um, during when he was with the military and we visited one of the sergeant majors there who was a personal friend of his and, you know, hung out, had, had tea and chatted for a couple hours. And he relayed to us that when Nuri al-Maliki came into power, he had removed almost all the senior leadership of CTS that was Sunni or Kurdish and replaced them with relatives of his that had no military background. Um, and to include a colonel that was well-respected that my colleague knew and my friend knew as well, um, who he had actually arrested and put in jail and said he was a terrorist or something like that. Um, and it had basically taken, taken all the oomph out of the CTS. Like they'd lost all their leadership. Everybody had been fired or imprisoned and then replaced with kind of incompetent relatives of the ruling government at the time. Um, so it was super partisan, super destructive to kind of the one uh, really great fighting force that they had there at that time. Um, and, you know, talking about corruption, it was totally this kind of family tribal uh, basis for doing it. And, it, you know, it alienates troops and um, makes them not as effective as a fighting force as well. But so these things were all kind of happening at the same time in this kind of 2013, 2012, 2013, 2014 so um, when did the U.S. contribute to the environment that allowed ISIS to come into existence? Absolutely, yes. We went in there and we removed a dictator and a you know one of the most powerful militaries in that region. Um, so yeah, we did we did create that environment where you kind of had this lawlessness. Um, but as far as alienating large groups of people. Um, and by the, the Iraqi government was able to do that well by themselves and, um, at the time and, and not the whole Iraqi government. I will say this, there are great people in the Iraqi government. Um, I have friends there that are still working there. So I would definitely, I'm not, not painting with broad strokes, but I think the prime minister at the time, um, really did not, it was hard for him to bring groups of people together and very much easier, very very easy for him to kind of like divide in the way he was kind of implementing his politics. So I, I think he created kind of a natural division there. And um, when you have all that discontent and also 
just so you know, the sons of Iraq, a lot of them had been fighting us prior to being created. So they were kind of like, this is what we do for a living. Um, it's not a terrible job to go get back into. And um, so I think for them creating ISIS after that or kind of being some of the initial fighters that bolstered ISIS. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the Arab Spring in general, like in Syria and like, I think uh, we could not have created it if we wanted to. Did we contribute to the environment? Yes. Um, but did we create it? Absolutely not. That, that's fascinating to, to talk about that because what you're saying about appointing relatives is that it's, it's, all, it's like the dark side of this thing that's wonderful about Arab Middle Eastern culture. Yes. Is that you have this wonderful family atmosphere. Yes, where absolutely. People, where people help each other out. One of my one of the most amazing, unique parts of Arab culture that I absolutely love is that closeness with family that if I say, I know your cousin, then I'm sitting down in your living room having tea with you and your, the kids are running around and you're asking about, you know, how's my life, even if you've never met me. It's incredible and super unique. Yeah, it's it's, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. Yeah. But there's there's a the dark side there is that yeah. you've kind of got religion governance and family all kind of rolled into this one thing yeah and if you don't separate those things into clear categories yeah then that leads to what we see here so it's one thing to say oh my my brother's son needs a job at the restaurant or the diamond store or yeah. whatever but then but then you put that on a, to a national level and say oh my brother's job my brother's uh my brother's son can't get a job oh, let's make him a general <laughs> True, yeah and that's truly what it was and um in fact at that time um they this was this is anecdotal so i and i i don't have hard evidence to this but this is what we were being told um that you could buy uh military ranks because of how corrupt they were. So basically, if you had $200,000, you could become a colonel in the military. And then what you would do is through bribes and extortion and also these kind of ghost soldiers, which we can talk about as well, because this was taking place, um, you could generate that income back. Um, and then I think a division commander was like a $2 million investment, but you would generate that income back. And basically people would, put you in that role, front you the $200,000, you were expected to repay it in the bribes that you were gonna make, and then you were this division commander or you know brigade commander or battalion commander. And at the time, in 2014, right after Mosul fell, uh, Nouria Maliki was removed or left office and was replaced by, uh, I, have, I gotta look up his name here, it was, Hydra Alabadi, um, he went in and kind of looked at, okay, what is the status of the military? We've got ISIS advancing on Baghdad. Mosul's already fallen. They did an audit, and they found 50,000 soldiers that they called ghost soldiers who were on the payroll but didn't actually exist or were not in uniform or training. They were like, I'm a cab driver in Baghdad, but technically I tell everybody that I work out of a unit in Mosul. And the way it works is I give half of my salary to my commander to never show up. And then I pocket the other half and keep driving my cab in, in Baghdad. And, um, but the, and how that worked out in Mosul, for example, when Mosul fell was they, I've heard estimates that there were, they, 
the Iraqi government's official number of troops in Mosul was between 25,000 and 60,000 federal police and Iraqi army soldiers. They think physically actual bodies there was probably less than 10,000. And Mosul collapsed almost immediately when ISIS showed up. And not only that, but the key leadership from the military, and these, again, would have been those folks that probably bought their uh, positions within the military, got on a helicopter and flew to Erbil kind of as soon as things started going south, like within the first day. So you had, um, it's there's so many problems created with that type of this ghost soldiers from not just like, oh, we thought there were 5,000 guys there and they're not. Those 5,000 guys could have been the logistics supply support system. So they're like, yeah, we're going to bring in your bullets and your food and all these things, but that unit doesn't actually exist. It only exists on paper and on payroll. So you have soldiers on the front lines, um, and we did see some reporting of this where they um, don't have radios, can't communicate with the units next to them. So the ISIS fighters were literally driving in between lines and ending up behind them or driving straight to the headquarters of that unit and massacring the headquarters. But nobody knew what was going on because they didn't have the radios, they didn't have the supplies, logistics, just nothing was there because it was all kind of paper tigers, like it had been created on payroll to make these officers wealthy, which it did do, um, but made them completely ineffectual when they had to face, you know, a serious threat to um, to the Iraqi population. The, the strange thing, the strange thing about that is is if you read ancient history, that's almost like the normal way of doing things. Because before, the first, one of the first sort of standing armies was the Roman military. And it's the same system. You have to pay for your rank. Yeah. The, and it's about your connections and your place in society, sure. which allows you this place. Because war is this opportunity for plunder and yeah. loose money flowing around. It's a way to enrich yourself. Yeah. So it's so completely opposite to the way we think about militaries today yeah but it's a very it's a very normal human way of doing things yeah 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 i think i mean i think that's fair and i i think you're right like i i would not beat up iraqis or iraqi culture over this corruption at all because i think it's very universal and um there was a a story i was going to tell earlier in 2004 when i was initially there there was uh a major in the u.s army um, who was based in a place called Camp Arifjan in Kuwait. And he was responsible for, initially his contracts were to bring water into Iraq uh, because so much of the critical infrastructure was damaged or destroyed in the conflict. Um, and you had, and also like the U.S. government in general will provide U.S. soldiers with very clean drinking water because it's such an important resource. Um, so what they were doing is bottling it in Kuwait and then shipping it up to you know, hundreds of thousands of bottles a day into all over the country to be delivered. So we were always drinking um, bottled water. We'd get pallets almost daily delivered of bottled water from you know five different companies. They'd all be labeled differently, and uh, that was our water. And it was we took showers with it, we drank it, like cooked with it. It was everything for us. Um, so very early on, uh, this would have been 2003, 2004, but it, it actually took place while I was there that this guy was arrested. There was a major in Kuwait who was basically saying, I will give out water contracts to um, Coca-Cola if you give me uh, $50,000 in cash. And um, so these companies would do this, and he ended up stealing or accepting 
$3 million in bribes in like a year and um, hooking up all these companies. And he was caught fairly quickly. Um, but all that to say that like that's a U.S. Army officer who's allegedly um, – and he was a contracting officer. So he's supposed to be like in charge of like how do we do things responsibly and fiscally responsibly and like within the confines of uh, – you know, army regulations and all these other things, he was completely corrupt and basically just saying, I'll, I'll give you this. It doesn't matter what's best for the soldiers. What matters is best for me. And um, so they ended up uh, about halfway through my tour, the water started showing up with no labels on it. I'm like, what happened to the labels? And like, they just consolidated it into all one bottling company. They're not labeling it anymore. It's just water coming to you because there was an issue. Apparently somebody took bribes. We found out Maybe three or four years later, the trial came out, and yeah, he'd taken massive amounts of money um, for his own self-interest. But yeah, that's that's, uh, that's insane. Yeah. So there's there's all the 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 sad thing about Iraq is there seems to be very few factions and organized groups right there with any sort of consolidated honesty. Because you've got the government protests right now of yeah of, for the same reasons yeah yeah absolutely yeah and I, I think um, the uh, the Iraqis know that their government is corrupt and they're not stupid they're incredibly educated like I um, every, so many of them speak English or other languages they're well read they're like bright they've got great universities there. Um, but when you get all that education, you come out on the other side and there's kind of no opportunities because the government is so corrupt and everybody knows the government is so corrupt. There's just so much frustration. And it's like in in almost every Iraqi I would talk to, if you started talking about government or jobs, um, they were just extremely, extremely frustrated. Um, the There was a joke that they would tell that was told to me by a couple of Iraqis, and I'm sure your Iraqi listeners will recognize it. But um, this was maybe 2012 or 13 when I heard it, so I think Obama was still in office. Um, but the joke was Obama goes to Baghdad um, on an official presidential visit, and while his motorcade is driving through downtown Baghdad, he sees a guy begging for money on the side of the street. So they don't stop. They're in an armored motorcade. They go you know, do their visits, and then... When he goes to leave the country, um, he meets uh, with one of the ministers and says, um, hey, here's $100,000. Will you give it to the beggar that we passed uh, when we were driving through the city? And the minister says, yeah, absolutely. I'll give it to the beggar. So um, that minister takes the money and goes to a police general and says, um, here's $40,000. It's from the U.S. government. Um, can you give it to the beggar that was on the side of the street uh, and tell him it's from the president? Uh, of the United States. And the police general says, yeah, great. So he takes the 40,000 and then goes to a police captain and says, hey, here's 10,000 bucks. It's from the U.S. government. It's for the beggar on the side of the street. Uh, the president says, you know, he saw him and he thought about him and he wants him to have this money. So the, the police captain goes to a police lieutenant and says, here's a thousand bucks. Um, it's from the U.S. <laughs> government. Uh, it's for the beggar. Can you go give it to the beggar? And then finally, a police officer walks up to the beggar on the side of the street in Baghdad and says, President Obama says, get a job <laughs> and walks away. And uh, so that's kind of how they see it. Like they're not they see the money, too. They see that 
the Americans infused $12 billion into the economy in the first year, and we didn't see any of it. Um, where is it going? What's going on? And they see uh, the senior ministers rolling around in armored Mercedes, um, kind of with these huge executive protection details and flying in helicopters and all those other sorts of things. And and then they look at their daily lives and they see power still being shut off regularly. They don't have access to clean water. Um, in the summer, it's incredibly hot and the power will regularly go out. Um, and people are sleeping on the roofs, doing all these things. Uh, so I, and then the security situation is terrible as well. So like, what is coming of this? Where is it going? Um, and so, yeah, I think when you look at, uh, at where they're at today, I think they're rightfully saying we want, we want just and fair leadership. Um, and there's been plenty of opportunity and plenty of resources thrown at it, but the corruption is killing us and, um, like literally killing them. And, uh, yeah, it's terrible. Uh, so I, I totally, um, when I see them and what's really interesting also about the protests, I was talking with a friend of mine about two months ago. She is, um, she is from Mosul, but is now, uh, now living in the U S um, she said, what's really unique about the protest now is that it's really not sectarian. Um, and that it's truly everybody is frustrated and they're all coming together just saying we're like the government's out of control, what they're doing. Um, the corruption here is just too widespread and it's not unique. Like I think Lebanon is going through similar things. Um, Iran is going through similar things right now where you're seeing massive kind of nationwide demonstrations. So, um, yeah, the, it's, it's definitely there. The frustration is definitely there and the people are not stupid, um, so, so let's tangibly look at a few ways this affects the average individual. Sure. So uh, just just on a practical level. So government's absorbing a lot of money. So if you want to... So I was talking to a friend from Turkmenistan mm -hmm. who studied in law school and then he can't become a lawyer because he doesn't have the bribe money necessary to start the sure. job. Is that sort of a similar thing? Are there so so if you want to open a business in Iraq, are there a lot of regulations you have to go through and know the right people, or is it something somebody could do and it's just a problem of lack of stability? Um, I don't have a good answer for you. Uh, I will say this: for opening businesses, I truly don't know. I do know that there is very much an entrepreneurial spirit within the Iraqi people, in that um, when I was a soldier there as an eighteen-year-old kids would run up to us with cold Cokes and say, I'll give you a Coke for a dollar. And it's like, it's 115 degrees out. This kid's getting a dollar. Yeah. Um, they knew exactly what they're doing. And uh, to the point that we had groups of kids that would feed us regularly, they'd be like, we'd be out on patrol. Be like, hey, set up in this intersection and hold it for four hours and check vehicles. And so we're out there and we've got our MREs, our meals ready to eat that are these kind of terrible boxed meals that will last for 10 years. Or we'd have these kids run up and say, we'll go get you a chicken and fresh bread and some pickles and Cokes for like five bucks. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. We're getting the chicken. And so and I would see a lot of like various and it's not just the kids like the adults, too. We'd see like kind of these small shops um, selling ice cream or selling Cokes or 
just setting up everywhere. And I can imagine that's very much a local thing. Folks are just doing that on their own, selling vegetables, selling food. Um, it's like the farmer's market thing that's kind of like a big deal here in Seattle is truly just life for everybody else. Um, and uh, so on that kind of that small level, it appeared that people could just do it um, if they had the resources to scrape together and, you know, buy a cart and sell stuff. But as far as like larger businesses, I, I truly I don't know. Um, I don't know the process there. So how would so one of those sort of cart vendors, how would the corruption situation affect that? kid selling food or maybe his dad who owns a small sort of store that makes a living on how would corruption in the country affect that kind of person i think where they would see it regularly would be probably probably to me the biggest thing would be electricity um in that i don't know what the situation is there now um but in 2012 2013 in baghdad the capital of iraq they would regularly do brownouts 12 hours, no uh, electricity, 12 hours electricity. And um, they were kind of like, how are we sitting on massive amounts of oil reserves and we've got the Mosul Dam producing hydroelectric power and we don't have electricity um, for 12 hours a day in a country that gets up to, you know, 115, 120 degrees on a really bad day in the summer. Um, and... Uh, so for them, for their daily lives, I mean, if you're going to try and run a business um, and you need electricity to keep the fish cold on ice or something like that, and it's just not there, then I'm sure that's super impactful. Um, trash pickup was a big thing. Sewer systems, like I know that the neighborhood that I was initially in, um, in eastern Baghdad, was a Shia neighborhood. This is, again, 2004. They did not have, again, this is a major capital city, a neighborhood that's maybe four miles from the downtown core where the palaces and all that stuff are. They had no underground sewer. The sewer was just running into the street. Um, they didn't have really, they had really intermittent electricity. Um, they had no garbage pickup. It had to be done locally by people that would just do it. So it was like, and that was, they told us that was because they were Shia and they would not get the same level of services that the Sunni neighborhoods would, where they'd get underground plumbing put in and regular garbage pickup and all of those things. I mean, that's insane because Iraq yeah. has had underground plumbing for 4,000 years. Yes. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it is. It, it's, and it was definitely, you moving from neighborhood to neighborhood, you can definitely see the difference from the Shia neighborhoods to the uh, Sunni neighborhoods and how they were maintained, or the Christian neighborhoods as well, um, were maintained. It was just very different. So what, what exactly is happening there? So there's enough electricity, and it's just getting diverted to certain places on... No, like I... What, how does that... Uh, my understanding is, and again, I'm sure your Iraqi listeners can fill in uh, with more details, but that... A lot of the infrastructure was destroyed. Um, and I know from working in other countries um, with similar issues that a big resource for corruption is um, when you put people in charge of critical infrastructure like electricity that have no background in it, they, they'll do things like, and I don't know if this happened in Iraq, but I would guess this is probably because this is a pattern I've seen in other countries, is 
something like power substations that need annual maintenance that's maybe $10,000, um, but it needs to be done every 12 months, they'll just keep the $10,000 and say we're not doing the annual maintenance. And then so you can probably push that off for a year or two, but then when you get down five or six years into it and that substation is completely destroyed or fried, um, it's going to cost a lot more than the money that you stole uh, from maintaining it to replace the whole thing. So um, I know within, within administration of infrastructure, um, a big portion of corruption comes out of like what would be considered annual maintenance fees. Like they'll just pocket those annual maintenance fees. Could be, you know, for oil, for electricity, for whatever. And when that stuff goes wrong, um, it's way harder to fix because you basically have to replace the whole thing because it just hasn't seen any maintenance and it's completely destroyed. So I would guess that those are probably along the lines of, of why the power infrastructure is not functioning well. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough, but I, I would be really curious to see what uh, the feedback you get from, from your listeners overseas. Yeah. Well, that, and honestly, that makes sense how that would trickle down to a, private business as well because if you're starting a business unless you can self-fund it from the beginning you need investors yeah and in an atmosphere like that why would you trust anybody with mm -hmm. your money yeah right it all becomes about okay i got to bury my wealth somewhere so other people don't steal it from me because yeah. that's essentially what's happening on a wide scale and even if you have you, you have a you can have plenty of honest people in the mix of that, but if, mm -hmm. if the theft and embezzlement is on a wide scale, then people are just more guarded with their money, so it never multiplies. It just stays in one place and doesn't build anything. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean the the destruction. I mean it's it is totally not worth it. Like the corruption is not worth it. Um, but I think um, when. We'll, if you were to step back and say, okay, what as humans drives us towards corruption and like to take things that are supposed to be for the greater good and to use them very selfishly, um, I think you're going back into like heart issues and like um, kind of how we are bent as humans, as like fallen humans um, towards sin. And uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's not helpful to anybody. It's not helpful to the people that are stealing the money. Do you think they're great people at the end of that, like that you would want to hang out and spend time with? Um, definitely not. Uh, and not, yeah, it's it's really, really destructive. Um, it's destructive to the cultural fabric. It's, it leads to loss of lives, as we're seeing right now with the protests in Iraq. And um, it's just massively destructive. What's... Uh... What's almost, it was always heartbreaking to me to some extent is that I, I have there's this parallel view in Middle Eastern cultures is that you have this idea that humanity is essentially good at its core. Yet at the same time, I, I feel like you talk to people from any Arab country or any Middle Eastern country. I've talked to people from Saudi Arabia, from Pakistan, from Afghanistan, from Iraq, from Syria, who just see their people as the worst people. There's something uniquely bad about their own national character 
that's not wrong with everywhere else. So you've got people are good, but not my people. Oh, interesting. And that's something I run into all the time. Yeah. And it's a very different view than the biblical view on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think what the kind of the biblical view to me is that uh, we're selfish. And um, the moment we put ourselves in the middle of whatever we're doing, whether it's relationships or money or uh, governance, um, we start to use the word in another way, corrupting it, right? We start turning it, turning something that should be good into something that's, that's not good. And um, it's our natural bent. It's how, we, it's how I move through life, right? And it's, it truly is by God's grace that he course corrects for me and like pulls me out and refocuses me. But um, that's, yeah, it's 100% what we do. And, uh, and so that's why I think you see it, you know, you don't just see it in the Iraqi government, right? You see it with the U.S. military guys that are working over there in charge of a lot of money. They're doing the same sorts of things. Um, and uh, it's, it's definitely present, yeah. So the, so, so I think often what's, the the uh, the reaction to this kind of thing is there is people looking for some external source of where is this coming from? Is this Saddam Hussein's fault? Is mm. this the U.S. government's fault? Yeah. Is this Iran's fault? Yeah. Who whose fault is it? Yeah. Behind these things, and while you can certainly point to things people have done that are not good in all of these things, that Jesus doesn't let us start there mm-hmm. what he tells us to do in matthew 5 is before you don't you look at the speck in your brother's eye while ignoring the plank in your own mm. first you need to remove the plank from your own eye then you will see clearly to help your brother with his own eye and i think the way the world works generally is we we tend to think about if you think about how just to think about how people would think about it in america mm. right the problems are the middle east first the opposite party second, uh, th- then then my family and then me. Yeah. And you want people want to deal with problems in that way. They want to think about something that's a long way away, and completely disconnected from them to start worrying about. That's kind of the root of a lot of conspiracy theories. Sure. It's trying to. It's trying to rationalize why the world is bad to things that have nothing to do with you. And the Christian approach, and it's not to say there are never conspiracies, there certainly are, but the way we have to address the world as Christians is first, what do I what do I have to deal with? Then what does my tribe have to deal with? Then maybe you can talk about what does my country need to deal with? And then maybe you can say something to other countries. But it has to start with working on yourself before you work on other people. Yeah, there was, a, you just made me think of a quote, so I just looked it up so I could... I can uh, say it correctly. Um, G.K. Chesterton had a quote when uh, the Times in London, I believe, had a headline of what is wrong with the world. And so he wrote in and his response was, dear sirs, I am. Um, and he's saying that we, it's, we can't just say what's wrong with the world. What's, what is something we can point to? Um, it's it's us. It's like we're the thing that's wrong. And he said, and and it's me too, right? 
Um, so yeah, I absolutely think there's, it's interesting also when you talk about conspiracy theories and uh, that the idea that like, did the US create ISIS and is it like one of their things? It's um, what it's doing is it's putting a really, uh, a kind of simple answer on a really complex problem. And even the answer that I gave, like, oh, was it Nouri al-Maliki and his kind of, his, how his processes within the government of separating people, probably not just him, right? It's, there's deep-rooted things that are going much farther back, and there's oil, and there's money, and there's a lot of things going on that allowed it to be created. Um, but it's giving a simple answer to a complex problem, which is generally not a good idea unless the simple answer is what you just talked about and what G.K. Chesterton said. It's like, if you really want what's what's going on here, what's the bad thing, it's us. Um, that's probably as simple as it can get. But if you want to say, like, it's the United States and their interventionist policies, or it is Iran, Iran and using proxies within Iraq, you're probably being a bit too simplistic with regards to Iraqi culture and governance and conflict and money and all of those things going on there. And I and to and to clarify something here that I, I was talking to my friend about from Turkey about this the other day, and he he said that he thought just describing everything to sin nature is a simplistic way to look at a complex world. And the, what I and I I understand how we how we can see that. We, sure, yeah. This this is my my answer to that is the way the Bible would see the world. Imagine it as a hospital with all different types of wards and all types of people sick with different types of things, with different need types of injuries that are on. There's also a fire that's going to burn down the whole hospital if it's not put out. And that's what sin is like, is that there's this underlying thing we all have to deal with. Yeah. And as we deal with it, then there's all sorts of individual problems yes. that we, we yeah. have to deal with as well. Yeah. But that's why it starts in you before it starts with everybody else, because yeah. there is, is this root issue that leads to lots of other things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not to say that Sunni sins and Shia sins and Christian sins, American sins, Iraqi sins are all the exact same sins. Yeah. We all have uniquely good things about us and uniquely bad things about absolutely. us that are amplified. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's let's do this. Let's let's try and build in Iraq from the ground up here. Let's uh, let, let, let's figure out what the Bible would say to this. And and then try and add some practical things to think about as well. Sure. Knowing that we can only take a very limited, this is a complex problem. Yeah. Yeah. And of which I, I don't have a clear picture, you know, after six years of time over there. Right. I, so, I've, I've never been there. Yeah. And I can give a much less clear picture. Yeah. But I think there's some, there's some biblical principles of, of where to start. So the first, right, is, is this sin nature yeah. that we all think, we all get to wake up thinking, I'm what's right with the world. What's wrong with the world is out there somewhere. Mm -hmm. And the way we can, Jesus says to look at yourself before you look at others. Well, how, how sure. do you do that? Because if, if I'm my own judge and jury, then, hey, I'm doing good, right? Now I can go judge people. Yeah. Uh, and the... Uh, but the the way is that God has given us his word so that we can measure ourselves to what God says right and wrong are, not just by our own internal standard. And then when we, when we go to God's word, we, we see that we are corrupt and that we that we actually, that we're just as bad as anyone else by our nature. And we need God to 
forgive us our sins, mm-hmm. to transform our nature. Mm-hmm. So through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we receive forgiveness of sins mm-hmm. and a transformation of our nature by God giving us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to fight against this inner evil within us, right? So that instead of God's standards just becoming some condemnation of us, it's something that we can hope apply to the world in hope. So when we read in Deuteronomy that that we 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 don't show partiality, we don't pervert justice, we don't accept bribes, that's something that we can then strive for and be empowered to actually to live that way. Even if it's just you. Right? That's the that's the beauty of this. Because often we find ourselves in compromised situations and we think, well everyone else is doing it. How am I going to survive if no one's on my side. If, if, the, if the country works through bribery, then I gotta bribe people, I gotta take bribes. Otherwise, mm-hmm. how is my family going to get ahead in the world? But the word of God says in Exodus, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil. That you stand up, even if it's just you. And you can do that because Jesus did that. That he stands for truth leading even to his own death, yet you can't kill truth. And even if you do, it'll come back from the dead. So we can kind of have this confidence to face evil by ourselves if we have to, even if no one else is. And hopefully it's not just not just us. And so, And then part of that is understanding what God wants for how a country functions. Mm-hmm. So we talked earlier about how th- there's this kind of worldview that, basically makes family religion the individual the state or kind of one just kind of giant animal and the bible has this very distinctive separation of those things there's four types of government you've got self-governance right which means that you have the sins in the bible which there's no legal punishments for you kind of have to deal with yourself then you've got family governance, the, what parents do to raise their children, discipline, instruction. Sure. Then you've got religious governance, which is which was the sort of priestly system back in the Old Testament, would be the church now, which is there to be agents of mercy. That They administered sacrifices. They taught people moral character, and they, they kind of disciplined their own members, but they didn't have any legal power to enforce punishments. And then you have the king, who's there to run the court system to make sure there's no bribery, there's no theft, that people are protected and living in stability. So the the Bible gives us all of these realms to be working on, and there's hope for every individual within that through what Jesus has done. Then from what you've seen, how would you apply that practically in a place like Iraq? Um. I think like it is tough. I mean it it's tough because I think you kind of mentioned this earlier when you're working with a system that's corrupt to begin with like how do you affect change, right? Um because even to get into the system you may have to be corrupt right. or like or that's the way it appears, right? So um <clears throat> Like, practically, um, I think as individuals, we are held to a moral standard, right? 
And um, I think that is, if, you, if you're a Christian, um, or you don't have to be a Christian, but if, if you have a strong set of moral standards that is against corruption, um, I think that, to me, that is a biblical value, right? And so I think if you follow that value, it works towards human flourishing, right? It's to the greater good of all people to, be, to stand against corruption. And um, so I, yeah, I think like to stand on those, you, sh you should stand on those personal moral values. Um, I think the biblical moral values uh, are the most complete and they, they, are, they are the truth. So they paint the clearest picture. That's to me. So um, I would say stand on those things uh, as an individual. And then um, when you interact uh, with the government in a place like that, um, you know, you you really, you you are very limited. I mean, I would I you, I can't deny that. And um, but I would also say this that I know that where we are limited, God has the ability to intervene from the outside through an infinite amount of resources uh, to change things. And that does not mean that like if you're a good Christian. Uh, God will change the government and make it so it works, you know, it works for you and is serving the people. Um, because sometimes God allows these things to go on for a long time and he allows things like ISIS to be created to that are um, extremely oppressive and violent and terrible. Um, but uh, yeah, I would I would just I would just say like, you know, the Bible also says pray for leaders. Right. And I think that's something that I know I often forget to do on a regular basis. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I just think you need to live in the way that you need to live to that, to that moral code, um, that increases human flourishing, uh, as much as you can. And, um, if you do fail in it cause you're a government worker and for some reason you accept a bribe or things go wrong, say like, get back up and keep going and, um, don't let it happen again. And, you know, move forward, like kind of the way we all move through sins or personal failings. Um, and if you are in that position and you want to change things, you know, do things the right way, then you, sh you know, you really should follow those, those, uh, that kind of moral value and moral code. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's, it really is, um, to me as a Christian, it's like the Holy Spirit can guide me when I'm not sure. Um, I can go to God and pray. He's a, he's like a father, right? So he takes care of me and gives me advice and guides me as well. And, you know, we've got a great resource in the Bible or other believers where we can reach out and ask for advice. Um, so I say like engage, engage people, engage the Bible, engage in prayer. Um, those are great resources. Um, I don't think there's like a silver bullet. Like if you do these three things, corruption is going to be gone and right, you're going right. to like be in a, you know, everything's going to, going to go well. Um, and I also think this, like, I think God does not, God does guarantee suffering, right? He says, this is part of what goes on in a fallen world. And that is cold comfort to somebody that is living under an oppressive government for me to just say, oh yeah, God said there's going to be suffering. So there you are. Um, but um, it is true that, you know, God cares for each one of us and there is judgment, I think also. Um, for sin and for corruption and for people that are corrupt. 
And um, that judgment may, may not happen here, and it may not happen when we're around to see it, but um, I do believe that it will happen and it will take place. So, um, yeah, I, I think you've got to keep move, moving forward. You've got to move forward in suffering, and you've got to move forward even if you don't see that there's a way out. And, um, you know, God is faithful to us uh, even when we aren't faithful to him, and it should drive us towards faithfulness to him. And um, that's that's like kind of all the encouragement I can give. I would, I would say also, I think there is, there truly is going to be judgment and justice, um, before God for everyone, um, good and bad. So, so one thing when I was doing an Iraq episode a couple of weeks ago is I realized that Iraq today is actually a lot like Judea in the time of Jesus. If you think about it, because it's caught between a Western power and a Persian power because you've kind of got this threat of Parthian invasion, <laughs> maybe less so at the time of Jesus' ministry. When he was a child, that's huge. Sure. And you've got people, you've got this corrupt government facilitating all of it with these tax collectors sure. who are skimming yep. money from people and keeping a bunch for themselves so that that's why everyone hates the tax collectors. Yeah, yeah. And so Jesus' ministry is not ostracizing those people, yeah. but it's actually reaching out to those people. Yeah. So you have men like Zacchaeus, who's taken, who's a corrupt man by this definition, mm -hmm. right? He's got, a, he's had a government job, and then he's taken a ton of the money for for himself. Yeah, absolutely. And then Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to with you tonight. Yeah. So, it's, I think it's important for, especially for Christians in Iraq, to remember that that all of us are tainted by corruption, and it's easy to look at corrupt government officials and be like, okay, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. And you've got these austere religious leaders, like, oh, the corrupt government officials are the problem. Yeah. But Jesus has come to have mercy on them as well. And that does mean repentance, right? Mm -hmm. Zacchaeus says, if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to repay them fourfold what I've taken from them. Yeah. And he, give, he, he gives money to help the poor. It's this heart level transformation of this corrupt official to, yeah. I'm going to pay the people I've stolen from back and I'm going to help the poor yeah. and the people around me with my position now. But what but what's interesting so I think every Iraqi should go and they should read the life of Jesus because yeah. he's speaking to a culture exactly like theirs, full of judgmental religious leaders and corrupt political officials and a nation with what the heck even is the future of this place? Yeah. And he, he kind of comes into that. So I was thinking, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, it's almost if what's needed in Iraq is for people who are committed to some higher values to almost form the, this kind of community within the wider community. I'm like, oh, like a church. Yeah. So it's there's there's so much wisdom in, in the way forward Jesus is offering. Yeah. And it isn't and it's not a way forward full of ease because ultimately Jerusalem is destroyed and people are scattered. Yeah. And the church has to flee to Antioch to prosper. But one thing you see in church history is that Christians in one place, when they're not able to live their life freely and honestly the way they want to they'll move to a different place and set up a community there and the first place that happens is in antioch in syria when they're persecuted in judea when when the roman empire is persecuting christians you get lots of thriving christian communities outside of the roman empire and then when you're having the puritans kind of suppressed in england they move to holland initially mm -hmm. in order to practice their faith freely but then they don't want to lose their distinctives of their culture and 
they so they move to America so they can teach their kids English history as well as biblical values. Yeah. So my hope is that Iraqis don't think, oh, my culture is worse than other cultures and I'm gonna abandon it. Yeah. My hope I is agree. That, my hope is that they would see that this is a human problem. Yeah. God has solutions to these problems and I, and that we can work towards what's preserving what's wonderful and great about Iraqi culture and the, contrib the rich contribution Iraq yeah, has had absolutely. to human history while pushing back against the worst parts of culture like we would with any individual, any society, any culture. Yeah. No, I think that's, I mean, it's an amazing point and a great way to like bring this all together. Um, yeah. yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your yeah. experience here. I had a, had a ton of fun listening to your stories. I hope to have you on again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for being here. And thank you guys for listening to the Almeida Initiative podcast. We will be back next week with another episode.